It's Easter. When I say Jesus is risen, you say Jesus is risen indeed. Let's do that. Jesus is risen. Again, Jesus is risen. Amen. It is good to be able to gather together today in the room and online to have you here with us as we begin a new sermon series on private prayer. Why would it be that we would start a sermon series about prayer on Easter? Well, the resurrection, Easter, makes all the difference. And the resurrection of Jesus proves His power over death and hell, redeems us from our life of sins, and creates a relationship for us with the God of the entire universe. And that relationship grows through the conversation that is prayer. So we start today with this idea of a diary of private prayer. And if you haven't already got your book, that's a daily devotional book with a short morning and evening reading, a diary of private prayer, they're available at the information counter for $10. Now, the other reason you might want to go out there is there's a super cool backdrop with all these nice things to get your Easter picture made. Some of you look so nice today, I almost didn't recognize you. I'm not saying who. Some of you are wearing colors that I didn't know you could wear, but you are here and you are looking good and we're glad and we've got guys in their Easter best and ladies in their Easter best dresses and it is good to be together. We call God the Father because we learned that from Jesus. We think about God as a father because that's what we've been taught. But the world that pronounce it and somehow be accursed, they believe that God sent angels to do His bidding on earth. And so they had this idea of a distant view of God. They even thought that a personal view of God as God as a father was degrading to God and therefore blasphemous. So for Jesus to teach His disciples and us, To pray to God as Father was a relationship that his world couldn't understand. Yet in John chapter 17, which will be our key text today, and if you haven't turned there already, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17. We're going to read just verses 1 through 5. But in this prayer that is recorded in its entirety in John chapter 17, Jesus used the word Father six times. Throughout his life and ministry that's recorded in our Bible, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he refers to God as his Father, and he models it for us too. So what we see when we turn to John chapter 17 has been called the real Lord's Prayer. It's an example of Jesus praying, and he's praying for himself in verses 1 through 5. He's praying for his disciples in verses 6 through 19, his disciples then, and he's praying for all believers even today in verses 20 through 26. And we follow this example. I'm wondering if you're able to, would you stand with me now in the honor of reading God's word as we read our focal text this morning, verses 1 through 5 of John 17. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. 
Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Let's pray. God, our Father, we gather together to worship you this Easter Sunday because of everything that Easter means to us, that Jesus, your Son, gave his life to set us free from our sins and to draw us into a personal love relationship with you, the God of the whole universe. So, Father, here we are before you today with our minds and our hearts open, with your word open, asking you to speak to us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. And everyone said, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. If you haven't already... You can go on your phone or on your tablet to southviewbaptist.org, and there's a bulletin page there, but also the YouVersion Bible app. That Bible app, if you go to the events in the lower right, you'll find our sermon outline, and of course, it'll be up here on the screens for you as well. As we follow along, and we've got five points today to consider what we learn from Jesus' model prayer for us about private prayer. The first one is this. God's glory. God's glory. Read in verse 1 there. It says, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. Well, after Jesus said what? If you look back in John, John is different than the other Gospels, and it has this extended farewell discourse, theologians call it, where Jesus is teaching his disciples that were there about what's going to happen. They've spent three years with him, but he's saying, hey guys, I'm about to be crucified, and I'm going to be resurrected on the third day, and I'm going to go to heaven, and I'm not going to be with you forever. So here's these things you need to know. And you find those recorded in John 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16. So after Jesus has said these things to them, he's telling them. He looked toward heaven and prayed. When you look towards someone, you give them their attention, right? If I were to call my friend Warren, he just looked at me. Warren gave me his attention. I'm giving him my attention. You look towards me, you give me your attention. When we pray, many times we can pray with our eyes open, but we close our eyes in order to focus our mind's attention and our heart's affection on God. That's what we're doing. So Jesus looked toward heaven and prayed, and it says there as we continue in verse 1, Father, remember what I told you. For his culture, God as Father was impersonal, even heretical or blasphemous. He says the hour, that means the time, has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Jesus' purpose, his sole purpose was to bring glory to God. He brought glory to God by living the life God called him to live, by obeying as God called him to obey, and by being a witness to us and by giving his very life as a sacrifice on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins, to bridge the gap from God to us. That Jesus did that with his arms outstretched. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. His job, his purpose was 
to bring glory to God. The Westminster Catechism teaches that it's the chief end of man to bring glory to God and enjoy Him forever. But what I see there, and that's in your question, is how can I pray with humility? Jesus, knowing that He's facing a terrible, wicked, painful death, prays to bring glory to God. He's humbled himself. That God, I want to bring glory to you, not to my He has amazing, miraculous powers. He's praying that God, I want to bring glory to you, not to myself. God, I'm going to follow you obediently. I am humble before you. Psalm 73, verse 25 and 26 says, Whom I have high in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire but you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is my strength of my heart and my portion forever. Jesus had that sort of humility, turning himself towards God. Humility is hard. It goes against our nature, our flesh, our pride, our protection, our fear, all those things that tell us not to be humble, to be tough, to take it for ourselves. Yet God calls us to humble ourselves and to trust Him. Which leads us to that question. How can I pray with humility? What do I need to surrender? What do I need to let go of? Where do I need to trust God in my life today? God's glory is our first point. God's purpose is our second point. God's purpose is our second point. And we see that in verse 2. Jesus prays for you granted him, he's praying of himself in the third person, authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Jesus was judge. He will be judge eternally in heaven on the throne, choosing between right and wrong, sin and righteousness, eternity in heaven and eternity in hell. And he has that authority. Well, why authority? That he might give to any eternal life life. The purpose that Jesus had was eternal life for humanity, which leads to our second question. How does God redeem humanity? If God's purpose is redemption, if God's purpose is salvation, if God's purpose is to draw us into a personal relationship with Him, how is it that He does that? Keep in mind what Scripture says. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. Because of God's mercy, He reached down to us. It says, for all who believed in Him won't perish but have eternal life. It says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been. God loves you and God will save you. And even today, He's reaching out to you. And today may be your day of salvation to say, I've never trusted Jesus as my personal Savior and Lord. And whether you're here with us or whether you're online, you choose to commit your life to be a follower of Jesus. God's glory, God's purpose. Jesus goes on and in verse 3, verse 3 is God's gift. God's gift. Verse 3 is a bit of an interlude in this prayer. It's almost like a confession of faith. 
It's as if Jesus is stating for those that were listening then, which we don't think anybody was listening then, so how did it get recorded? Hey, they maybe were listening, but God by His Holy Spirit inspired it. He's recording there in verse 3. Let me read. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, speaking of Himself again, third person, whom you have sent. Knowing God isn't just the way to eternal life. Knowing God is eternal life. Look at what Jesus says again. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you. That God made you, the only you there is in the entire world, and He made you uniquely in order that you might be in relationship with Him. He didn't make you to waste your life. He didn't make you to throw your life away. He didn't make you to spend eternity separated from Him in hell. He made you to be in eternal relationship with Him that is in heaven forever. A place without sin and therefore without sickness, without pain, without fear, without any of the things that drag us down in this life. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God. If that's God's gift to us, if Jesus' purpose was to bring glory to God, if God's desire was to make a relationship with us and Him that lasts forever, then that gift, that gift is what we share with others, which leads to our third question, and that is, how do I share Jesus with others? How is it that you share Jesus with others? When we talk about witnessing, when we talk about evangelism as the fancy church word for it, some of us may say, well, I share Jesus a lot of the time. Some of us are like, I share Jesus some of the time. Others are, I share Jesus never. Some of us are like, I'm confident when I share Jesus. Others are like, I'm a little bit timid. And some of us are like, whoa, I'm full of fear. God is with you every time in every situation. And I would submit to you that God is no more with you, no more present in your life than when you take a step of faith, when you do something that you're not comfortable with, and that you say, my power is limited here, my ability, my experience, and that's where God inhabits you, and that's where God visits you, and that's where the Holy Spirit shows up with strength and power in your life. And it's an amazing thing. If you haven't done it before, you should try it. You should go home, and when God calls you to a step of obedience, or when God calls you to a step of faith, you do it. You say, hey, Pastor Aaron said I should try it. I'll blame it on him if it goes wrong, right? And so you take that step of faith, and in the midst of your faith, God shows up and does something that you couldn't imagine would happen. The Bible says God can do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all we ask or imagine. Why don't we try it out? As we share God's gift with others, as we share a witness of what God has done in our life and what the Bible says, and invite them to consider a personal relationship with Jesus themselves. The Bible tells us that all of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory, but the Bible also tells us that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. God's gift is eternal life. And as believers in Jesus, we ought to be about the business of sharing that gift with others and inviting them to receive it as well, just as the majority of us that are here listening to me this morning have already done that. God's gift. 
So we've got God's glory that Jesus is after, God's purpose in bringing redemption to humanity, God's work. Look at what Jesus says. He says, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Kind of an odd job Jesus got, right? He didn't go to college, didn't go to trade school, didn't learn on the job, anything like that. He left heaven and everything that was perfect and right and became a baby inside of a lady's tummy. Nine months later, he was born a natural birth, just like any other baby would be. And he grew up from an infant who couldn't do anything to a man. Yes, he had a special relationship with God. Yes, he never sinned. But he was a man. He was human. He could skin his knee. He could get his feelings hurt. He could have somebody sock him in the nose because they wanted to take his jacket. He suffered all kinds of things just like we suffer. Yet, his job was to come and live a life among us so that he would know what it was to be like us in order to bring glory to God, to complete the work he had to do. Now, Jesus is foreshadowing what's about to come because his work's not done until he goes to the cross and is crucified and dies in order that his blood may pay the penalty for our sins. God's work that Jesus was out to do by finishing the work you called me to do. That work is the work we celebrate on Easter, that he died on what we call Good Friday. And though hell rejoiced, all heaven started counting to three. One, two, three. And Easter Sunday he arose. The resurrection, redemption, salvation, all those things. Which leads us to our fourth question. And that fourth question is, how thoroughly do I obey what I know? What God has called you to, what God has called me to, how thoroughly... How regularly do I obey those things? Jesus was about God's work. And Jesus was going to follow God's will and His purpose even to a cruel death on a cross. But what about you and I? If it's God's work to bring glory to God, how well do I obey? I've said so many times from this pulpit, and I'll say again right now, if you've got an obedience problem, you have a love problem. The Bible tells us that if we love God, we'll obey. And almost cyclically, if we obey God, it proves our love for Him. And so if you're having a problem resisting temptation, if you're having a problem with a besetting or habitual sin, what I would say to you that you need to do is get in God's Word. Read particularly in the Gospels who Jesus was and the God that Jesus knows Grab a book like a diary of private prayer that every morning and every evening will focus your mind on a personal, private relationship with God that will grow your love relationship with Him. And I guarantee you, when you grow your love relationship with God, obedience will come a whole lot easier to God. It just works that way. So we had God's glory, God's purpose, God's gift, God's work, and our fifth and final point this morning. It's God's promise. I don't know about you, but I love a good promise. One of my favorite promises to see is when a young man and a young lady, I say young, they don't have to be young, do they? Get engaged. And there's generally given in our culture a ring that that young lady has. 
with a stone or stones on it. And it's significant of a promise. That promise that I believe God has called you and I together and we're committed to one another and someday we're going to be married in husband, as a husband and wife. But from the day we get engaged until then, we're in preparation. God's promise. Look at God's promise here in verse 5 as Jesus says. He says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Why do I call that God's promise? God gave Jesus that glory before the world began. Jesus left the glory of eternity to come and be born and live on earth just like you and I. But he was going back to that. Yet he had to go through a cruel, wicked death in order to get there and to be resurrected, to live forever, to prove his power over death and sin. And that's the promise that Jesus is talking about. God's promise that he would be back in God's presence Which leads us to our fifth question. How does God's sovereignty assure me? If God says it, He'll do it. Sovereign means He has all the power, all the ability. And it should give us assurance. It should give us hope. It should strengthen our faith. It should make obedience easier to know that what God says He will do. And Jesus was dependent on God's promise that if He gave His life and if He went and fought sin at the gates of hell, that He would be resurrected, that He would be reunited with God in heaven, and He would pay the penalty and purchase salvation for all of us, all humanity who ever lived. God's sovereignty assures me. Where do I need God's sovereignty? How do I need it exceedingly and abundantly in my life? Which leads to our final question this morning, and that's an application question for all of us. Which of these points is most important for me today? You could just show up in church looking pretty nice and go out there and get your picture made before you leave and even buy yourself a diary of private prayer book and say, hey, today's the fourth, so I'll read, you know, fourth day, and then I'll read it tonight. You could do that and go home and eat your Easter dinner and everything would be fine. But God desires more of you and me than that. God desires that as we've studied His Word and listened to Him this morning, that we would apply some of it. I wonder if it's what we learned in verse 1 about God's glory where we might need more humility in our life. I wonder if it's what Jesus taught us in verse 2 that God's purpose of redemption that we need to be a part of and we need to be humbled by. I wonder if it's the challenge of verse 3 to share God's gift of eternal life with others that we need to do a better job at. There's somebody here with us today or somebody that we're going to call seek to engage them in a conversation like that. Maybe it's that fourth verse and fourth point about God's work and our obedience that there's something we need to obey that we just need to say, okay, God, I surrender. I'm going to do it today. I obey. I trust you. Maybe it's that fifth and final verse, the fifth and final point. God's promise that you need to ask God to strengthen your belief and faith in his sovereignty within you. So when he calls you to obey, you say yes. When he calls you to take a step of faith, you do. That there's no doubt, there's no fear, there's no worry, there's obedience. A person can live, excuse me, let me start again. Just like a person cannot live without breath, 
A godly person can't live without prayer. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you for these words that challenge us. This prayer of Jesus just before he was to be crucified, before he'd spend time in the grave, before he'd be resurrected, that we get to celebrate Easter Sunday, that remind us of who you are and who you've called us to be. So God, our Father, we thank you that we could gather together this morning and worship you and remember your Son, our risen Savior. And it's our prayer that we wouldn't leave this place just with a picture or a book or nice memories in our nice clothes, but without a decision that says, yes, I'm going to obey. I'm going to commit myself to follow him. Or yes, I'm going to trust Jesus as my personal Savior and Lord, even though I don't know everything that means. So God, would we humbly obey you now? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.